And in our last session together, we talked about um, place as it related to the ancient Israelites. Then we started talking about what, what it means to leave your place, all of the things that are associated with your place and to go somewhere else. And that that's our foundation story. Our foundation myth is that we leave somewhere and become strangers in a place that will become the land associated with the family of Abraham and Sarah. And so that they, their descendants will have that land and land and belonging to the land and being part of the land, being part of the people, Israel will become a central tenet of, of Judaism and Jewish tradition um, starting from there that it becomes this attachment to the land of Israel in a very specific and special way. And then we talked um, a lot about what it meant to be in diaspora, what it meant to be exiled from the land and what people's experience were of how do you maintain Jewish identity and Jewish continuity and Jewish connection when all of the relationship had been to the land. The holidays were around the agriculture of the land, right? All Everything was about the seasons. All of our chagim, all of our festivals are about attachment to the seasons as they happen in the land of Israel. So, um so what does it mean to be a diaspora community then? So we talked a lot about what does it mean to be displaced? What does it mean to then make your Jewish life something other than, almost entirely other than connection to land? Um, and so we explored some of that. We explored what that looked like, that it becomes the synagogue space. And we talked about that, the synagogue of Alexandria and the glory of that, right? So we we started talking about the tensions inherent in that. And what does that do to change our um, identity as Jews? And so... Um, so we left it there last time. I've had many comments from you that that was a very fruitful conversation, which makes me very happy to hear. Some people are nodding online at home, um, which I'm very happy to hear. So now we're going to pick up where we left off. Um, so because we, we talked about the formation of the state of Israel, um, but I want we're going to back up a little bit from the founding of the state. And we're going to look at some of the things that are happening both to the Jewish people and in the world outside of the Jewish people um, as a conversation, as this idea of um, citizenship in the world and eventually a return to Israel, the land, with many of us choosing to remain in the diaspora being the dynamics at play, okay? Because that's that's what we're living with now. And that's what we're dealing with constantly whenever we... Um, whenever we talk about Israel and our relationship to Israel and, and folks who don't have a relationship to Israel, but have a deep relationship with the Jewish people and, and Judaism. So, uh, so we are going to pick up, you have your source materials right here. When we begin our discussion tonight, we're beginning with Europe, 1806, because this is where the intellectual conversation about the Jewish people and its relationship to the land of Israel really gets going in terms of its implications for Jews. Jews are all over the world at this point. We know that. Um, but in lots of places, it doesn't matter. They pray three times a day to return to Israel and it remains this longing, knowing that it's never going to happen in their lifetimes, you know, and, and they long for it and they pray facing Jerusalem, but they're, they're stuck where they are, it's not even a remote possibility that they're going to be able to return to the land. That will happen when the third temple is built and the day of judgment comes and God comes back to uh, take care of all the junk we've been doing. <laughs> and since God came down a couple of other times in the 
biblical period to, to deal with things. Um, and so we're going to pick up where the conversation really is meaningful about what, what does the Jewish relationship, the Jewish people's relationship to land mean for Jewish connection to other lands. So let's look at that. Well, but first, so as you know, Napoleon conquered a lot of Europe. Um, he was considering whether or not to give Jews citizenship in France. Um, and that conversation, who, how are you going to have that conversation? Who are you going to have that conversation with? Who's going to know the Jews well enough? Right. Right. Who's, who's going to do so he put together a Sanhedrin. Um, he knew enough to know that, that that had been the leading body for a Jewish representation at one point in Jewish history. So he puts together a Sanhedrin of Jewish leaders who he could then put questions to, to see if if what their answers would uh, convince him that it was possible for Jews to be worthy of citizenship in France, and could they be loyal to France as their fatherland? Um, as you know, until the 19th century, Jews were not granted citizen- citizenship in any of the places that they lived, right, in Europe. So the, the, no, no citizenship until the uh, 18th century, I mean the 19th century. Okay. Uh, what else do they want me to tell you? Um, some of it is about different religions and the religious tension between Christians who were, uh, looking to supplant Jews. So as long as Jews are around, it kind of goes against their argument that Jesus is the path and the way and the light and the truth and the only way. So Jews are an irritant, um, to a religion that wants to replace Jews, uh, who see themselves as the new Israel. So, um, the idea was that if Jews had a relationship to another country at all, how could they be loyal citizens of France? Um, and the members of the Sanhedrin were supposed to um, convince Napoleon that they considered their French citizens more kin than their fellow Jews, right? That, that's the argument they had to make in order to be granted citizenship. That, that was the setup. They had to convince Napoleon of that. Um, and his people of that uh, in order to be granted citizenship. Um, and so um, Jewish peoplehood and the centrality of Israel to that sense of peoplehood is now a liability. Right now, if you're in any way connected to a people beyond the borders of your land that you want to be a citizen of and or you're connected in any way to another actual land, another country, in a deep way, then by definition, you are not able to be loyal citizens of this people, the French people, nor are you able to have your primary loyalty be to the land, the country of France. Right, Bert? You just came from there. Right? So, 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 so you can see where we're shifting. Jewish peoplehood, which has held the Jewish people in some ways together in terms of identity in the diaspora. Connection to the land of Israel is our common point of reference. Those two things that have kept the Jewish people together in diaspora, in the exile experience, those two things that have been central to how we survive as a people now become a liability. Now become, mm no. Any expression of that now works against the argument that we want to be equals uh, in the countries that we're living in. Okay, so let's look at source number one. So Napoleon's questions to the assembly of Jewish notables and their response. Here's an excerpt. Do Jews born in France 
and treated by the laws as French citizens, consider France their country. Are they bound to defend it? Are they bound to obey the laws and to conform to the dispositions of the civil code? Answer. The love of the country is in the heart of Jews, a sentiment so natural, so powerful, and so consonant to their religious opinions that a French Jew considers himself in England as among strangers, although he may be among Jews. And the case is the same with English Jews in France. So what, what, what just happened? What's the shift here? So do Jews in France, if they're treated by, as French citizens, consider France their country? Are they bound to defend it? And are they bound to obey its laws? And, and the answer is, this is at the heart of Jews. And it's a sentiment so natural, so powerful, and so consonant to their religious opinions that, of course, a French Jew considers themselves much more, like, much more at home in France than in England, even if they're in England in a shtibel, davening. So, A, I want to ask, do you think that's true? Of the, of the Jews who are answering this question. And B, what do you think about that? That, that statement that, well, it's so clearly who we are that we're attached to land that of course we're attached to France. Cause what do they really mean? They mean the land of Israel. Matt, you look like you want to say something. And Bert jumps up with the microphone. I mean, I, I think considering this, you know, when this took place, you had, I mean, Napoleon was incredibly progressive, right, for his time. He was willing to let the Jews be citizens, let them out of this horrible condition that they've been living in for centuries. If As, they as long as they were willing right. to say, he was willing to say, and this is in a Catholic country, you can be a Jew if that's your religion. You just have to not be a people, Right. And, you know, and we're, you're talking about the connection to the land. And I think the rabbi said, I think we should take this so we can get out of this miserable condition that we're in. I mean, we'll tell him anyway. I, it's complicated, but he doesn't have to know that. Interesting. So w- one thing maybe outward facing, right, in terms of what we need to say and maybe something else in terms of oh, internally, we can discuss what it actually means, but to say, okay, Forget the land of Israel. Forget Jewish peoplehood. We are loyal to France as a land, as a country, and we're loyal to French citizens first over and above Jews. So Jewish peoplehood. Okay. So when you read the part that the love of country is in the heart of Jews, a sentiment so natural, I jumped right back to the Babylonian times and certainly those Babylonian, the Jews that went from Jerusalem to Babylonia in in their heart they transformed and you know this is Napoleon's a long time after that and the rabbis have established all the traditions and everything a long time before in terms of uh, um, keeping the land sacred but not living in the land okay but remember peoplehood is what allowed them to have a sense of still being Jewish and their primary identity being a Jewish identity 
Peoplehood was the way they did that outside the land. Without a relationship to the land, your only way to do it is peoplehood. So you're right. They established that way before this. But but, but now peoplehood has to go out the window. So did they call it peoplehood in the, that time? Meaning or did they Am call Yisrael. It you're part of Am Yisrael. But it, you it, are first part of Am Yisrael. So now, yes, you're right. That got established with by the time they had a nice flourishing community in New York, you know, about and they've, ta- they, they, they've probably been acting it out for a long time. That's why they survived in all the different countries. But now countries. they're being asked to give it up. That's my point. You're right. It's been in place for a long time that they had to learn how to live not in relationship to the land anymore. So what was their primary Jewish identification? It was with Am Yisrael. It was with the people, Israel, wherever they were. And eventually we would return to the land. And so now to answer Napoleon, the answer had to be, if we're in England with a bunch of Jews, we feel nothing for them like we do for our French Catholic neighbors. Do you see what I'm saying? That is a, re- that is a revolution. Mary. Well, with regards to the Catholicism question, Part of the French Revolution is that it became a more secular country, that religious laws, you had the division of religion, even an antagonistic approach, depending on who, which faction was in power. It's all very complicated, a lot back and forth, but by Napoleon, the Napoleonic code is secular. It's the first to decriminalize homosexuality, for example. And that was kind of a back and forth leading up to Napoleon. But that's just one of the things that characterizes after the French Revolution, that it was a move to a more secular society so what's fascinating about that mary mm-hmm. thank you for pointing that out what's fascinating mm-hmm. about that is the secularization that's happening winds up pushing judaism to become a religion and not an identification with am yisrael and not an identification with someday returning to the land of israel that very secularization that you just mentioned winds up ironically pushing the Jews to identify their their primary um, understanding of their identity as confessors of a religious tradition. So I, let's hold, and, and that's going to be in, in one of our sources. Go ahead, Bert. Uh, I don't think Napoleon's question was so strange. I think it's very normal. Uh, if now, you, no, even then, if you in in the sense he's basically saying. If you say that you, you know, you're just loyal to Jews and everybody wants to return to Israel, then how can you be French? And that, that, it was not an unreasonable question to ask. Uh, we were asking it, not we, but I mean, the United States was asking that. I remember when John F. Kennedy ran for president. Put it the whole close question, to your mouth. The whole question was, you know, would, could we elect a Catholic president? And part of the reason was he would be more, uh, hey, we'd have more allegiance to the Pope than to the United States. Right. So again, I want to say, yes, we go, well, duh, you would need to ask that question. My point is, it's obvious to us now that question was never asked before this. 
It was never a question. The assumption was they are part of the people Israel first. They are loyal to the land of Israel first. And there's no question to ask. There's no conversation. Yeah, the question was if you want to be French citizens. That was never a conversation before because the assumption was it was impossible. And not just for Jews. No, not just for Jews, but especially for Jews, I think. For sure. Catholics don't consider themselves a people. So you had peoplehood on top of connection to a land, on top of connection to like religious authorities that are outside of the secular authorities. So this gets into this blurry area of nationality versus religion, which I think we're constantly being faced with. And correct. And, and what, what are the guardrails for those two things? Correct. And I think, I mean, that's the point of the Hartman curriculum is to lift up that this is constantly attention. It has been, it remains one. And so one of the things we want to do is kind of pull apart. What are the different phases of that? Right. What's the development of that over time and where one comes up and the other goes down, you know, like where that and we're going to see that with Zionism, that it starts to tip again. And we're in that stage, you know, and in Hartman a few years ago, that was the whole summer um, of when all the rabbis joined us at Hartman from all over the world. The, The topic was nationalism, Zionism as nationalism, American nationalism. Like what, what, wait, looking at our text and like trying to like deal with where are we now in this moment of, um, nationalism here in America and, and in Israel? As recently as last week, I walked into a store in Paris and while my wife was shopping, I started talking. Yeah. I started, uh, talking to the shopkeeper, uh, who asked me, you know, where I was from. And I said, America. And we got to talking and he saw that I had a high. He said, he said, well, what are you? And I said, well, I'm a Jewish, I'm what a Jewish you? American. He said, how's that possible? Turns out, t- turns out he was a Tunisian Jew, but he had that question even in 2023. How, how can you be a hyphenated? Right. You're, you're like either, if, if you're Jewish, then you're not American, at right. least in his, in his mind. Right. Clause of the answer. The love of the country is in, in the heart of Jews, a sentiment so natural, so powerful. Okay, I get that. <laughs> and so consonant with their religious opinions. I would regard it as completely independent or completely orthogonal in, in, in a way to religious so opinions. So this is where I was saying, I think, and I don't know because I'm not a scholar of this stuff, but I think it's actually in a way ironic that, that it's like what they're saying is, we're designed to love the land. It's part of our religious life. It's part of our religious understanding that you have a harvest festival called Sukkot. We are designed to love the land. But what's funny, I mean, or ironic or whatever is like, it's like, I think that's what they're saying, but it's like, but it's of course the land of Israel, not Dafka France, right? It, it is built into Jewish religious life this relationship to the land and the love of the land. That's true. It's just a different land, right? Otherwise I don't understand it either. Otherwise like Jewish religion as practiced in, you know, Atlanta, Georgia has nothing to do in and of itself with the land, the red clay of Georgia, the pines, right? Of Georgia, Mm -hmm. nothing. I think the only way you can claim that is if you're claiming our religious tradition has been linked to the land forever, right? Meaning the land of Israel. <laughs> so, 
Um, I mean, I could be wrong, but that's how I read it. I don't know how else to read it because you're right. Otherwise, like, what does that even mean? Like, right, that the religion, that it's consonant with our religion. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear they were telling Napoleon what he wanted to hear. And it's kind of a matter of survival. So isn't this kind of the beginning of assimilation? We had this whole discussion about assimilation a couple of classes ago. Um, so it is kind of an internal, external thing. You got to say one thing to survive. What you think among yourselves could be different. Right. So, I, yes, it's definitely the beginning. We talked about this a lot last time. Um, the beginning of the double coin, you know, the two sides of the coin. The opportunity, which is what I was saying, you know, when to Bert's comments, the opportunity has never been offered before for Jews to be citizens ever, ever. So all of a sudden, the opportunity is there to be citizens, to be equals. What do we have to sacrifice about Jewish identification on, on and on what levels to accept the offer of citizenship? And it may be that at some point we say one thing, but internally we do whatever. But how long until the actual being citizens starts to have its own effect on how we under really understand, even privately, even in our own circles, how we understand Jewish identity. And I think that's that's exactly what we have here. The beginnings of that that dilemma, that process, that new experience that hadn't happened until the 19th century. Okay. All right. So this is to Mary's point, how Judaism became a religion. So we're going to look at text of source number two. So um, Leora Batnitsky, uh, in this piece, she is a professor of modern Jewish philosophy at Princeton. Um, and she's trace, she's tracing the changes to Jewish ideology and modernity, um, defined as following the French Revolution. Um, and her, her, Position is that the acquisition of citizenship by European Jewry in the 19th century completely changed the face of Judaism. Because citizens in a nation state are considered as individuals rather than as a group, Judaism no longer automatically meant belonging to a culture or to a nation. Instead, Judaism could simply be a religion like any other, a profession of one's faith, which made no collective demands. That's a lot that we just said in that one um, sentence. So let, let's look at the actual source. Let's look at source two. Prior to modernity, which I will define in the pages that in the pages that follow as the acquisition of citizenship rights for Jews, Judaism was not a religion, and Jewishness was not a matter of culture or nationality. Rather, Judaism and Jewishness were all of these at once: religion, culture, and nationality. So once you start treating Jews as citizens, you start treating them as individuals. This has never happened before. This is a new idea. Most commun- most societies are communitarian. You live together. You identify together. You're part of a group. You're part of either a religion or a people or a tribe or a clan or a race or a whatever. You're not individuals. This is a new idea with the Enlightenment. This idea that the individual, you all know this, you've been schooled in this, you know, like you have rights and responsibilities and all that stuff. That is a new idea. Okay. For the world. I get that. It's a new idea for the world, but for Jews, that is a radical change. 
That is a radical change at the most fundamental levels. You are now no longer associated with the Jewish people. You had no choice before this. You were a part of the Jewish people, whether you liked it or not. You could apostatize, but if someone found out you were Jewish, guess what? They identified you as a Jew. Didn't matter that you tried to pass or make it out, right? You you were a Jew because that was the understanding. You're part of a people. You're part of, use the word race. That's a modern word, but you're part of that that thing, right? And it wasn't just religion. You were part of a people. You were part of a culture. You were part of a whole set of things associated with that. That was not about religion. Now that Jews are treated as individuals with the giving of citizenship in Europe, and individualism, you know, as it becomes, you know, a thing, the individual as a as the primary, you know, authority with all the attendant rights and responsibilities. Now you have separated, to your point, you've now separated the Jew from their own understanding of their identity as being part of the Jewish people. Right now, I'm just an individual who happens to be. Jewish. Well, I'm French and Jewish, right? But right. So that, that is a new thing. That is a new way to be a Jew in the world that was never possible before. So it's both possible and I don't, I don't mean to use this word pejoratively, but like detrimental in some ways to like what the group identity then is. There isn't one. There isn't a group identity. The individual becomes right. The supreme. Uh, source of all of these things. So Jewishness was both a religion, was, was a religion, a culture, and a nationality on some level until the granting of citizenship and this idea of uh, the individual. Okay. Yes. Okay. I, I did miss the first classes, so I apologize if this has been covered, but are we going to talk about us as a tribe as well? Was that, was that like considered an opposition to being a, a, a citizen of a, of a country if we're part of our own tribe? There was never the possibility to be part of another country, ever. We were only a tribe. Our tribal identity was both internally understood to be who we were and externally reinforced. You are Jews, you belong to that tribe. Yes, yes, that we're a people. A tribe, a tribe, a nation, a cu- part of a culture. Part- now, ironically, to Mary's point, a secularizing movement pushes Jews to become only associated with the religion. Right? That's kind of crazy. It's a secularizing in some ways movement of the individual having power and being a citizen of the country, no matter what else goes on. Well, if that's the case, if I'm not part of a nation, if I'm not part of a tribe, I'm part of the French, then what does that leave me in terms of Judaism? What is what is a Jewish identity then? It becomes now only a religious identity. So let's look at source number three. Let's look at the American reform movement. Remember, reform Judaism begins in Germany as a response to the Enlightenment, as a response to Jews getting citizenship, as a response to this idea that we don't have to be just part of our tribe. It used to be you were either part of the Jewish people or you weren't, which meant you were part of 
being um, you had to live under Jewish law because the, the law of the land did not apply to you. By definition, as a Jew, you lived under the authority of the rabbinate. The rabbis were given authority over their people because there was not citizenship. Individuals were not considered anything. You were a group, whether that's by religion or however people wanted to define that. So Jews lived under the rabbinate, the authority of the rabbinate. So now let's look at the reform movement, which is the part of the first response to the invitation to being individuals who can choose to be part of a religion or not. So the reform movement is the first response to orthodoxy. The first response to orthodoxy is reform Judaism, reforming the tradition. So look at source number three. We recognize in the modern era of universal culture of heart and intellect, the approaching of the realization of Israel's great messianic hope for the establishment of the kingdom of truth, justice, and peace among all men. We consider We consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither a return to Palestine, nor a sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron, nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. This was the official position in the 1885 a Pittsburgh platform. This was the position of the reform movement in America, which breaks with the idea of the centrality, right, of the land of Israel in any way as being like a place we long for or want to be or will ever return to, um, and also rejects the centrality of peoplehood. It states it very clearly. We're now a religion. We are not a people. We are not attached to the land. We are religion like any other religion, um, you could say, I mean, I, I'm going to push it, but in America, we are the same as any other folks who are, you know, part of some religious tradition. And ours happens to be Judaism. It says religious community, but I think the church would say they are the body of Christ. They are the polity. They are a community. They have no problem saying that they are, right? The, house of christ okay this is this is a burning question a burning question or a burning question burning question a burning question okay how can you have a nationality without a nation so what so wait i need you to define nation well that's again we're getting to semantics how do we define a nation and i guess you could call the jewish people a nation but i'm thinking more like israel or america were France as a nation. Because nationalism became such a, a big force in the world, which led to World War One, World War II, right? The defining of boundaries in some kind of crazy ways because people voted on India and Pakistan and like Tajikistan, right? Like so nationalism became such a thing that everyone was obsessed with what does nation mean? What nation, what, what does nationhood have to do with land and with people and with culture, right? That's how those countries got divided in the crazy ways that they did. Oh, well, those people are Hindu 
And those people are you like, and so let's just draw the line there. That's a natural place to draw the line. And then it turns out, oh, it's not so natural, right? It turns out there are other things people have in common culturally by language, by food, by their festivals that they may be of different religions even. But when you draw the line down the middle of them, you separate people who actually have a lot in common as a people who are attached to a land that you've now drawn arbitrary boundaries around and called this a nation and this a nation. So to your point, I'm going to say, like, who knows what? What is a nation, you know, right. That's a good question. But the Jewish people in, in their self understanding always understood themselves to be a nation, a people who were dispersed, who no longer had a relationship to the land except in the future. But that remained any Jew who prayed, where, what do we face when we're in that sanctuary? Face east. Well, we face the ark, but theoretically, no, theoretically, we face east. Um, I don't like to tell people that, but um, yeah, so right, we face the ark because I just can't not face the ark. But you know, like, but we're supposed to face east, right? So, so even Jews who have no intention of moving to the land of Israel, we still face Jerusalem, like, and so we always understood ourselves to be a nation connected to that land, but until the formation of the state of Israel, there wasn't an opportunity to go back to it. So it was kind of safe in a way to have a connection to the land because you can't go there. We're going to be here. Our loyalty is here, you know, and now it becomes more complicated once you have Zionism on the scene. It's a lot easier when it's a theory, exactly, or a nice dream or a nice you know, metaphor or a nice whatever. Bert? Two quick Two quick comments. It, it always strikes me that when we face Jerusalem, actually we're facing each other. Because in fact, if Jews all around the world are facing this one point, it really isn't, it is Jerusalem, but we are facing each other Beautiful. very much, very much the way we do in our sanctuary, which is done in the round. Beautiful. The other point I was going to raise, the, the Soviet Union had this idea, the whole question of nationality and, uh, and citizenship, uh, they thought that they were creating, you know, the universal state and everybody's internal passport had two different lines on it. Mm-hmm. One said your, one said your citizenship, which was which republic you lived in. And I forget how many there were 10 or 11 or something like that. And the other was your nationality. Jew was a nationality. Right. It was the infamous line seven. And everybody's internal passport that you had to carry with you said, if you were Jewish, it said Jew. And when you got stopped on the street and they asked for your papers, there your papers say Jew. Uh, a lot of people were very happy when that was eliminated, when that was, no, there, no, every, yeah, you were Jewish, you were Tajik, you were Kazakh, uh, you were Russian. Russian was a nationality. Uh, so theoretically, it wasn't possible to be a Russian Jew. You were Russian or Jewish. But that was, on the one hand, an attempt to deal with that. I don't know how sincere it was, but, but on the other hand, a recognition of the fact that nationality, whatever that is, is different from citizenship. And it kept you, line seven, if it had Jew on it, kept you from university. It kept you from promotions. It kept you from all kinds of things. Um, and, and until, I don't know if you heard me say this at something, high holidays or something, but, um, until Jews were standing at Ukraine and had a passport that had on line seven, um, Jew, and they were hollering, Jew, 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 
because finally it meant somebody was on the other side to help you. You would get out of there is yeah, you would get aid. You would you, somehow the forces would be, you know, um, what do you call it? Activated to, um, to get you out. So it's, you know, living through, um, the incredibly different ways that that's interpreted. Matt? Right. Well, in, in the Soviet Union, of course, there was, you know, a long tradition dating back to the era of the Tsars of terrible anti-Semitism. But in the Soviet Union, there, you know, they, their theory was there was no religion. So you had to be, <laughs> Jews were, Jews were a nation and they knew from the time of the Tsars. No, the Jews are a nation. They're not part of us. The difference being in Western countries, most importantly, the United States, where we said, hey, it's never been this good for us. We can really, I mean, this is finally it. So we're never going back to Palestine anyway. We're not going to go to that dusty, ridiculous, pardon the expression, God forsaken place. That's, you know, that's impossible anyway. So we're going to take this and run with it. So um that's the way it was until you know, the modern Zionist movement came in. And even then for decades, most Jews didn't, you know, weren't interested in Zionism. It wasn't until well, I, I would say we're yeah. looking at it now. Yeah. Right. We're looking at it now. Um, but to your point, Stephen, like the, so, so go figure like blind seven says your nationality is Jew. That's, that's not a Jewish identification. These people were Russian. They had maybe one grandparent who was Jew. You know, it's like, like what? Like, what does that mean? My nationality is Jew, right? So that's not even a self-understanding that's imposed by the outside world saying you're a nation. Okay. If that's my nationality, then that means I'm part of a nation. What does it mean that I'm part of a nation that doesn't have a land, right? And don't live together on that land. But you're saying I'm not a citizen of Russia. I'm my nationality is Jew, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's complicated. It's crazy, right? When you think about it, it's about who defines it. Lisa Klein, speak. Yeah, I just wanted to say, sorry, my camera's not working, but when I worked with Soviet Jews that came here, I guess it was in the 80s, and I remember sitting and asking them what it was like, and they had no Jewish traditions. We were introducing them to a Seder, that kind of thing, and they explained that it was that line on their documents. So they didn't identify as Jewish in any way, but for those limited rights, it was like you just said, one relative and my family was from Ukraine, which nobody, you know, but I was, you know, we were doing everything we could to welcome them and they were just so happy to be here and be welcomed. But there was no, it was so strange because they weren't welcomed where they lived, yet they had nowhere no, they, they didn't have a religion. Right. My relatives are from Ukraine and I do not consider myself Ukrainian. Right. I do not consider myself of Ukrainian descent. Right. So this is, this there. is how complicated it gets, right? <laughs> I don't know what that. Well, you have different criteria for determining what is nationality. What's a Jew? What, who's a Jew? Right. Now, all that stuff that, that has been imposed on Jews. Until Zionism, right? Till the founding of the state of Israel, where it's still under fierce debate. Whose standards do we use for the right of return? Hitler's? Okay. Really? We want to use Hitler's definition? That made sense at one time. Like in the immediate aftermath, that made total sense. But now a lot of Jews are saying, really? 
We're going to use Hitler's definition for Russians who have one Jewish grandparent who never observed one thing, who never identified as Jewish, but they want out of Russia and they want to get to Israel because it's better in Israel. And it's a, it's a launching pad from Israel to the United States or Israel to Europe. Okay. Really? We want to accept Nazi standards, right? It's, it is a burning debate in Israel right now, a burning debate. Okay. So let's look at. Source number four, the first Zionist Congress. So this is a different approach to modernity, like dealing with the Jewish question in modernity. Rather than moving away from peoplehood and the centrality of Israel, Zionism uh, reasserts, so we're talking about Zionism now, reasserts the importance of both Jewish peoplehood and Israel. With this focus on the land of Israel and on Jewish peoplehood, Zionism as a movement rejects viewing Judaism solely as a confessional religion. So I want us to think about these, this question of confessional and Zionism. Um, and I want to have a little bit of that conversation after this. So let's look at source number four, the first Zionist Congress. The aim of Zionism is to create for the Jewish people a publicly and legally assured home in Palestine. The Congress contemplates, meaning the first Zionist Congress, contemplates the following means to the attainment of this end. Number one, the promotion on suitable lines of the colonization of Palestine by Jewish agricultural and industrial workers. This is kibbutzim, draining the swamps, right? Number two, the organization and binding together of the whole Jewry by means of appropriate institutions, local and international, in accordance with the laws of each country. The strengthening and fostering of Jewish national sentiment and consciousness. And number four, preparatory steps towards obtaining government consent where necessary to the, to the attainment of the aim of Zionism. All right. So a com- Zionism becomes completely antithetical to the American reform Response, we are a confessional religion only. Zionism comes to say, nuh-uh, nuh-uh. We are primarily a people, and we are a people, to your question, attached to a land. That's what it means to be a people. That's what it means to be a nation, according to Zionism, is attached to the land of Israel. And so doing everything possible when, of course, in 1897, there was not any kind of vision of a possibility of, right, a Jewish state, but there was this, the beginnings of, okay, if we start to colonize Palestine, we start to make the reality happen on the ground. And as everybody knows, you make a reality on the ground and often lots of stuff follows from there, which turned out to be absolutely the case. Um, as we've talked about, like it was not World War II, right, that made Israel happen. Like all, all of Israeli government stuff was already in place before World War II. All of it. Already in place. It just had to be ratified by the world community. So I'm not saying that didn't have an impact on the world community's voting. I'm just saying it was all in place. It was all worked out. The, the whole way to govern uh, in the land of Israel, all of that was already worked out. So because this was the dream. The dream was to return to the land to bring what we'd learned in exile, what we'd learned in the diaspora, to bring that to the land and now become a people 
proud to be associated with the land, with the language was that also got added, right? And a Jewish national sentiment and consciousness. And that can only happen. And this is, we talked about this a, a little bit last time. Talk to any Israeli. They'll tell you that can only happen where? In Israel. Can only happen in Israel. No mention of God. Dana's pointing out no mention of religion or God. That is Zionism is not founded unless you're talking about religious Zionists. You are talking to Mary's point about a hyper secular movement. Think about kibbutzim. They were all about draining the swamps and a return to the land and agriculture. The chalutzim, the pioneers were all about work. It was a socialist, communist movement that was completely anti-religion. Not only not religious, but on many levels, anti-religion, that is the poison. Religion's the poison that ruins the whole thing. It's a return to the land, to the language, to the culture, to peoplehood, to communitarianism, to taking care of each other, right? And we talked, you know, a couple of sessions ago about, you know, what does it mean to belong to a people? What is loyalty to a people to take care of each other, to put that in some way as first, as, as primary, right, in our considerations of who we're taking care of. And that was the understanding of Zionism. Completely antithetical to the reform movement Pittsburgh platform. Completely antithetical. They're saying it has nothing to do with culture, nothing to do with being a people, nothing to do with the land. It is a confessional religion like any other. At the same time, you have the movement of Zionism saying, forget religion. It has nothing to do with religion. It's about the land, the culture, the language, the people. You can understand how that sets up major tensions within the Jewish people that we are still living the repercussions of today. This split, we are still living today. P.S. Mordechai Kaplan and his students did not join the reform movement because they were concerned they were still Zionist only in lip service. Mordechai Kaplan's writing in the 20s, the 30s, and he doesn't want to break off of the conservative movement and start a new movement because he thinks there's already too many fissures in the Jewish people. He doesn't want to start a movement. So the only thing that made sense if you're leaving the conservative movement was to join. You can't join the Orthodox. He's leaving the conservative movement because he doesn't feel like it's top down. He feels that's like it's bottom up. Kashrut is about us reaching for the divine, not the divine telling us what to eat. So if that, if you're leaving the conservative movement because of that, then you can't go to the Orthodox. Right. You're going. That's that's the wrong way. That's going backwards. So then that means you have to look to reform Judaism. But he felt and his students felt reform Judaism was not sufficiently Zionist. That Reconstructionists had, you know, the, the early thinkers and leaders of the movement had a deep love of the land of Israel, its language having Jewish peoplehood flourish there, having it be a center of Jewish identity and Jewish life and a love of that and, and wanting that to thrive and wanting to support that and wanting to be part of that civilization that was developing um, in the land of Israel. So that's just a, a side note for us Reconstructionists, um, that that's one of the reasons there is a Reconstructionist movement is because Kaplan and his students did not feel that the reform were sufficiently committed to Zionism. Yes, Phil. Of these events? My memory of these events are very hazy, but but I, I, I remember there was a time in the early history of Zionism where there was consideration of a Jewish homeland in Uganda. Correct. And the question is, 
the idea is that you have a Jewish homeland, which would be a place for Jews to be safe, which had no, no bearing whatsoever to the, the ancient land of Israel and the Jews connection to the ancient land of Israel. Correct. I mean, how would, how would that play out with these concepts? So the thinking was that because it seemed impossible to have it happen in the actual land of Israel and because Jews were being offered a place in Uganda, it was kind of that immediate sense of do we, do we hold out for a dream that we're not sure could ever really materialize or do we take what they're offering so that we can have a people related to a land where it's just, you know, where Jews have sovereignty and we could develop that. You could speak the Jewish language there. You could, you know, bring back the idea of, you know, relationship of the religion to the, the cycles of the harvest and of the land. It's a close enough that it's in the same hemisphere. <laughs> like we should take it. If we don't take it, then what if this doesn't happen? So, I mean, I think it was pragmatism. Like they would have had to work out. We, it would have been very interesting to see what that would have looked like, what that project would have like looked like with these ideas. But I think the idea was, okay, maybe it's not the land of Israel, but it's a land that will be ours, you know, as opposed to we're dispersed and other people have sovereignty over the land that we live in and, and our Judaism comes second. We could be a people again, a nation on land that we would call our nation. So and I think that's how that worked. But it would have been very interesting to see how that played out. <laughs> right? No, right. Yes, Mary. So I recently listened to a course on Herzl, Theodore Herzl, and he, one of the things he was concerned about was when Jews immigrated, that it seemed to result in some outbreak of anti-Semitism. So he was in Israel, just in, in Palestine, in Europe, in Europe, in Europe. So that may have been a factor why they weren't they were exploring other options because if you go to Israel you see what happened that you you immigrated you were living with other people and you came to you end up with the same result so i wonder if that was one of the reasons they looked into uganda i think argentina was another one okay just a theory Okay. Love that. You have more knowledge than me. I've been to Uganda. I don't think a lot of Jews would want to live there. <laughs> so, so we went the right way. Here's what you're saying. Um, so we're going to still surrounded. Look at source number five. Um, this is our last source. Um, so that, so source number five is now 1937, the American reform movement, the Columbus platform, um, which shows, uh, you know, an evolving understanding of these concepts, you know, um, ideas of place, peoplehood and religion among modern Jews, showing the change in the reform movement's approach to both Israel and to Jewish peoplehood, Zionism and European anti-Semitism as it's gaining momentum. So one of the things that starts to shape the reform movement's response, which began in Germany, you'll recall, you know, the reform movement's response to everything is like, uh oh, 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 right, things are getting pretty bad in Europe. All right, so source number five, in view of the changes that have taken place in the modern world and the consequent need of stating anew the teachings of Reform Judaism, the Central Conference of American Rabbis 
makes the following declaration of principles. It presents them not as a fixed creed, but as a guide for the progressive elements of Jewry. A, Judaism and its foundations. Under that is number five, Israel, because that's what we're talking about. Judaism is the soul of which Israel is the body. Living in all parts of the world, Israel has been held together by the ties of a common history and above all by the heritage of faith. Though we recognize in the group loyalty of Jews who have become estranged from our religious tradition, a bond which still unites them with us, we maintain that it is by its religion and for its religion that the Jewish people has lived. The non-Jew who accepts our faith is welcomed as a full member of the Jewish community. In all lands where our people live, they assume and seek to share loyally the full duties and responsibilities of citizenship and to create seats of Jewish knowledge and religion. In the rehabilitation of Palestine, the land hallowed by memories and hopes, we behold the promise of renewed life for many of our brethren. We affirm the obligation of all jury to aid in its upbuilding as a Jewish homeland by endeavoring to make it not only a haven of refuge for the oppressed, but also a center of Jewish culture and spiritual life. Throughout the ages, it has been Israel's mission to witness to the divine in the face of every form of paganism and materialism. We regard it as our historic task to cooperate, to cooperate with all men in the establishment of the kingdom of God, of universal brotherhood, justice, truth, and peace on earth. This is our messianic goal. I've been hearing on the news a lot the term word salad. And, and like, I got to tell you, I so feel for where they were. I so get the need for a restatement of their platform saying we're not just a confessional religion. We actually are a people like I get where they're at in that moment. And I don't mean in any way to be disrespectful, but you have to look at this and go like, what your messianic goal, you who don't want the Messiah, right? Which is why Kaplan and his students use the term, the messianic age. And it's up to us to create the messianic age, as it's referred to by the rabbis, the, the days of the Mashiach. Um, it's up to us to create the messianic Like So that's our messianic goal is to both live here and have everything be good here and have there be a center of culture and uh, over there. Um, Cause that's always been where our focus has been. And that's always been right. A part of what it means to be Jewish. We are held together, right? By ties of common history and the heritage of faith. They, they put faith first for sure. So there are Jews who become estranged from our religious tradition, those kibbutzniks draining the swamps, chief among them, all right, who have become estranged from the religious tradition, but there's a bond that unites us all, right? Um, and we maintain that it is by its religion and for its religion that the Jewish people has lived. This is completely antithetical still to the movement of those folks Right, going back to an agricultural relationship to the land of Israel, the land of our origins, right? It, completely antithetical. We have not lived for the religion. The religion has been there for us to sustain us. And for some people, they're like, we don't even need that anymore. We're moderns. We are past religion. We're post-religion. Forget post-denominational. We're post-religion. Thank God. We're done with all that mumbo jumbo, that superstition and all that garbage, right? We've moved on to the age of reason and to the intellect reigning supreme in every way. Um, 
So it's this very interesting dance that the reform movement has to do. And I think this tension is still there. It's still here. It's still present. And it's something that we as a synagogue live with. And this is where I wanted to talk to you a little bit. It's because as a reconstructionist synagogue, we completely embraced in our founding when Rabbi Winokur, um helped found the JCPP, the Jewish uh, Community of Pacific Palisades, the Jewish Center of Pacific Palisades Community, Jewish Community of Pacific Palisades. The JCPP was our original incorporation name. Um, it was understood that this was a Jewish community center, that that's really what this is, that there's a sanctuary at its heart because religion has a, a big part to play in that, but that this is the Jewish communal space. And so pushing against the ideas of Reform Judaism, which said you're a Jew if you profess the Jewish faith. And what are the tenets of that faith? Well, you have to read the Reform, you know, understanding of that. I'm not as versed in that, obviously, because I'm a Reconstructionist. So I think our synagogue is still dealing with Jews who really only associate Judaism with religion and Jews who are Jewish despite the religion, and Jews who have no idea what any of that's about. They just know they want in some way for their kids to be connected to this project of the Jewish people. And I say none of this derogatorily, none of it. It is a fascinating time in Jewish life to watch both the stuff that the reform movement we just read, we are a religion like any other religion. That is certainly still here among liberal Jews. Certainly. I live, I live in a house, you know, they, when I meet with couples, you know, they want their, their kid to be Baramat Mitzvah or they're wrestling with, do they want their kid to be Baramat Mitzvah? Because they live in a home where there's both religions. Okay. That means the Jewish partner understands Judaism for the most part. They've accepted the reform argument that it's a professed faith, just like Christians. So they can be raised with both. But if there's the little bit, cause I can always suss it out. If there's a little bit, of peoplehood going on in the Jew, they can't articulate it, but they know it's not the same, right? Think, why would you have a bat mitzvah if you're both? If the kid is both, why are you pushing for a bat mitzvah? But that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like if they're both Christian and Jewish, were you going to do a confirmation in the, in the church as well? Like if they're really equal, but what happens is the Jew knows there's something about bat mitzvah that's not about their professed religious faith, right? The Jew knows it's something else. It's a rite of passage in Jewish peoplehood. They can't articulate that. I articulate it for them. Or, or I mean, I check it out. I'm like, so let me just tell you what I'm feeling here or sensing here. And sure enough, they often start to cry. Because there it is. They bought this idea that in this multicultural, multi, you know, religious, multi, everyone's an individual. And to be an American means you're loyal to this country and you're loyal to this government and you're loyal to all that. You're not part real, that your primary identity is as an American. Then that means your Judaism is your religious affiliation the same way Christianity is for non-Jews who are Christian, right? Or Muslims, right? Who, Who are American. So, they buy it, but, but on some level, it doesn't land. They, there's something else. And we're, we see this all over the place that a lot of us are confused about our relationship. And a lot of us 
move. And a lot of us have accepted that it's very fluid, our relationship between our attachment and association with the religious principles and the religious expressions, the religious texts, the religious practices, all of that of the Jewish people, and just being a part of the Jewish people and having that be a thick primary part of our identity and being proud of that and being happy with that and not needing to have any part really in the religious life of the community. And that is that is a, uh, something I think I'd like to figure out how to give more voice to and more space to people kind of talking through and figuring out and being just honest and clear about it. Because anyway, Dana, you have your hand up. I'm kind of rambling. So, part of a class. Maybe the two civilizations is is just not America and the Jewish world. It's two civilizations within the Jewish world. It's not so easy. Yeah. You yeah. Know, because we are forced to do it. It's easy to be Jewish. It's easy to be a secular Jew in Israel and not right. feel conflict. Right. Which is what we said last time. Right. We S- talked about that last time. Secular Jew is something I don't think you can say that about a Christian or a Muslim. Correct. You can't say you're a secular Muslim or a secular. And yet most people, Jews and others, would accept that secular Jew is a meaningful term. And to say that, that means a Jew who doesn't practice the religion. Correct. So so anyone who says I'm a secular Jew is saying something about peoplehood. Well, absolutely. Right. And and it's just fascinating. Bagels and mocks Jew, you know, whatever you want to say. Right. Like I, I'm I'm. What, what is it? What, um, just, um, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual and I'm a secular Jew. So I do dabble in religion, not the Jewish religion, because that's an organized religion. I always try to assure them we are not as organized as you think. Don't worry. We are not organized. Um, but we, I'm not part of an organized religion. Judaism's included in that umbrella. I'm spiritual, not religious. And I'm a secular Jew. Culture Jew. Or Jew. Some people say that. Some people say secular. Some people say culturally Jew. Or I'm just, what is it? Just Jewish? What, Stephen? Um, There's so much to unpack in what, in what you said. And um, some of it, I think the relationship to Israel is, is part of it too. I think those of us who grew up, um, who are in their 50s and 60s now, we probably grew up with the dream of Israel, not the reality of Israel. And so that's just kind of pushed us away a bit. Um, I think also those of us who are lucky enough to go to Israel reconnect with more of the dream that, that we grew up with. And then we have to come back home and kind of deal with politics and all that. But, but, um, one thing that you said, I really wanted your opinion on this. You said the idea of a Jewish community center. Do you look at that as a negative as opposed to like a religious place where people come to express? Mm -mm. Because if you look at our programming and look at what we do, it lends itself more towards a community center. No, I think we are a community center. And I say that to people all the time. Like, don't worry, we're not so organized and we're not so religious. Like, when you think synagogue, if you're thinking a place to come pray, my people don't come to pray. Some people come to pray, but that's not what draws most people most of the week is not to Friday night services. We don't have a Saturday service. So the only time we gather to pray in that sanctuary weekly is on Friday night. That is not the majority of people who come to this building. 
it's not to pray. It's not to have a religious experience. It's to have other kinds of Jewish engagement that can be spiritual, that can feel religious, that might be completely intellectual or secular, that might be just cultural, that might be, right, (laughs) might be cooking. It might be music. It might be a film. It might be a conversation, right? It might. So um, no, for me, I believe that is the vision of a reconstructionist synagogue is that it is a place where the Jews come to gather. And, and I once gave a talk, a sermon about, so we should stop using the word synagogue because in English, it has this connotation of a place where you pray. Beit Knesset, the, the Hebrew term is the house of gathering. That is the Hebrew term for a synagogue. Beit Knesset, the house of gathering and the original synagogues in the second century, the original synagogues were places where they were the communal place of gathering, then eventually became a place of public prayer. But the original vision was to bring Jews together. And so that was the biggest space, you know, the community had. So, you know, if you had bikers coming on a like, you know, thing that they're biking on this like 500 mile trek, well, they have to come to the Beit Knesset and you'll put them up overnight because they're biking for a good cause. You give them water, you cook for them, you make some knishes, you know, whatever, and you feed them, kasha varnishka, like, you know, you, that, you, that's what the Beit Knesset was for. Like our largest place of being able to do a bunch of communal stuff that was not primarily about prayer. Or religion, or, you know, or just religious participation. So for me, like, I wish we could go back to that understanding of, of what a synagogue was. So this, uh, brings us back to the beginning of the first lecture. Where, Does it? Yeah. Did where, I come all the way back around you, to the beginning exactly. of the first lecture? Okay, great. Where you open <laughs> and close the first session with welcome home and where you brought the discussion full circle to tonight is that the core identity is part of the people. It's peoplehood. And however you connect to that larger community is who we are. Welcome home. Mark, can you give the sermon at High Holidays, please? I just, I'm ready. All right, people at home, you've been very quiet. Only Lisa spoke. Come on. What you got? What you got for me? Come on. Judith, you're muted, Judith. Unmute. I may be one of the few people here who were members of the congregation low those many years ago when Rabbi Winokur was here. And my recall is that it's the Jewish congregation of Pacific Palisades. But congregation is not a conflict word there because we are a congregation where we congregate here. And I think part of Kahilat is a tent, isn't it? Isn't it the covering that brings us all together? So Keila means community. It means congregation. Yeah. So, you know, surely but that, I think you know, it was Jewish congregation tent. of Pacific Palisades. The other thing I wanted to mention is that talking about finding a place for Jews in Africa would have been the greatest irony because Africa was already so subdivided by all the European countries, no country in Africa had retained its boundaries natural to its communities because the Europeans had come in and cut it up and taken it all for themselves. Uh, so thank God we didn't end up in Uganda. Yeah, I think it's hot when I go to Jerusalem. <laughs> I complain when I go there. Wasn't you were talking about Jewish community before? Wasn't there a Jewish community center movement? 
yes. thirties. Yes. To, to, a huge Jewish community center right, movement. Which, my, I went to Yeshiva High School. The Yeshiva High School was in the JCC. It right. was in the Jewish Community Center, right? And, it was for that. Be- for better or for worse, uh, that movement has seen hard times recently. Yes. Maybe just because the idea has been absorbed by so many of the other movements. Well, well the other thing is it, it's a, you know, like, you know, what was it called? The, the something with the pool, you know, like the, so the, Show with the pool, Jews with the pool or something. So, a basketball court. So, the basketball court, I played on racquetball courts. But the, but the point is like, it was a place where Jews could come and congregate and do stuff that wasn't necessarily Jewish because they weren't allowed in other places. So that's what happened. That's what killed the JCCs is that Jews were now allowed to join Brentwood Country Club. If you could join Brentwood Country Club, why would you go to the JCC? I mean, that really is what decimated. The JCCs and, and board service to synagogues and federations, because now Jews could be on the, you know, ballet board. Thank you all for being here and for your thoughtfulness and conversation.